Well, hello everybody. You might be thinking, Ezra, where the heck cheese have you been? Well, it's complicated. Um, I've been, I've been here, I've been there, I've been home, I've been away, I've been all over the place. Um, but I haven't been doing podcasts uh, for whatever reason. But um, you know, w- well, I should give a little background. When I started this podcast in uh, April of 2017, a little over a year ago, pretty much the exact same time, I also started my band Magic in the Other. And um, I was trying to, you know, make headway on both. And, um, and I, you know, and the podcast started, people started having a good response and I was encouraged and I was having a great time and I was trying to crank out episodes every week or two. And then, um, at the same time I was trying to, uh, you know, write all this original music and rehearse it with my bandmates and, and book shows and, um, you know, fund a record and record a record and, and that stuff all happened. And now, um, you know, the band's doing pretty, pretty well. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the momentum we've got. We're uh, little plugs. We're, we're playing at High Sierra this coming weekend. Really excited for that. Um, a bunch of, bunch of sets up there. And then we're also doing a tour with Nathan Moore, who you can hear on an earlier episode of this podcast, the Moore Magic Tour, um, coming to Santa Cruz and the Ivy Room in Albany, Chico and Berryessa Brewing in Winters. And that's immediately preceding High Sierra if you're listening in real time. So check that on our website. But anyway, that's a little tangential aside. But basically, as far as my attention, being a um, band leader and manager and, uh, and, and, and writer and all that, as well as all the other gigs I've been doing, it's kind of been winning as far as my attention. So therefore, I haven't been creaking out as much pod, as many podcasts um, for the last several months. And it's not because I don't love the podcast or, and it's not because I don't appreciate how supportive and all the great feedback everyone has given me. Um, it's just hard to do it all. And right now I'm really excited about the energy with the band and music. And um, I'm, I'm just currently a little less, um, you know, haven't been as much in my interview mind. Uh, and um, I'm not saying this is the end of the podcast. I'm just saying, you know, it might be something I, I tear down a bit or a lot. Maybe I'll pick it up at some point and crank out a bunch more. Uh, I feel like it could always be something I, I do to some extent. So anyway, don't delete me from your feed or anything like that. But maybe expect future episodes to be more like a rare bonus treat than a um, regularly occurring uh, meal. With that said, um, this last interview I've been sitting on for a while um, because of all the reasons I just mentioned, Uh, but it's a great interview and conversation I did, I believe in February, if not March, um, with the one and only Rob Baracco. Uh, Rob, I apologize this is getting out so late, but the conversation still stands up. if you have any associations with with the Grateful Dead world post post uh, post Garcia, um, or even pre Garcia, you probably are familiar with my guest Rob Baracco. Um, he ha- was part of the uh, famous Phil Lesh Quintet 
um, which toured with with Phil, um, featuring also featuring the great drummer John Mullo and and um, Warren Haynes and, and Jimmy Herring, and um, the, and Phil, uh, excuse me. Rob is also a member of Dark Star Orchestra, which is one of the most popular and successful Grateful Dead tribute bands, for lack of a better word. And he played in The Dead, which was, you know, a reunion of, of the members and the other ones. And he was one in one of the first um, Dead-related bands, the Zen Tricksters, in, in, uh, in the 1990s. And comes from a very musical background. Before that, he played on uh, keyboard for the Cosby Show at a very young age and played with Freddie Jackson. So he's not just a Grateful Dead-associated musician, but he certainly has earned his place in the um, Grateful Dead uh, Hall of Fame musician um, members uh, club located in uh, Palookaville, uh, San Francisco. Currently, he's also playing with California Kind, which is a very cool band uh, made up of, of Rob and Barry Sless of the David Nelson Band, Pete Sears of Jefferson uh, Starship and or Airplane, I'm not too sure, and a million other bands, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame royalty, John Molo from Phil and Friends and Bruce Hornsby, Katie Skeen. So check out, definitely check out California uh, Kind. They have some tour dates coming up. Anyway, I'm going to get into it. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for tuning in. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I had a great time talking with Rob, and, um, and now I'm going to pass it along to us, and I hope you enjoy, and thanks again for being part of this Ezra Lip Hour, more or less, experience. I will talk with you at the end of the episode. Okay. Please welcome Rob Rock. There's a, there's a really good story that, and, and it's really endearing to me because, because Greg Allman passed, you know, not too long ago. And, uh, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I think when I heard Greg's organ for the first time, I mean, it really sparked something in me. And, uh, and it's, in a lot of ways, he's responsible for the more modern version of me, uh, than the Beatle freak that I was as a kid. And, uh, when I was playing with Phil with the Q, uh, you know, I got, I got to be really good friends with Warren, Warren Haynes. And, uh, one night we, we had just gotten off tour, uh, it was in March, of probably 2001, I would imagine. And, uh, I was driving my son home from school and phone rings and it's Warren. I was like, Hey, what's up? He goes, Hey man, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, well, I'm nothing really. You know, I'll be home. He goes, why don't you, why don't you come into the city and sit in with, sit in with the brothers? I was like, sitting with the Allman Brothers? Hmm. I was like, shit, yeah, okay. I, you know, and of course, in my wildest imagination, I couldn't have set it up. Like, I, I'm trying to think of how I'm, this is going to go down. Right, yeah. And, you know, I figure they have a keyboard set up somewhere on the stage and this, that, and the other thing. So I get there, and Warren says, listen, you know, when we'll, we'll call you up for like two songs. Uh, we're going to do Statesboro blues and South down. And, uh, but you gotta, you gotta share Greg's organ bench with it because his electric piano is set up right next to the organ. 
I was like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, of course, now I'm like, oh, man, this could be really weird. Yeah, it's uh, so intense. All of a sudden, they call me up on the stage, and I, I sit down, and, you know, Greg, there he is. It's Greg Allman. You know, it's the first time I've ever been anywhere near this guy. And he looks at me and goes, hey, man, how are you doing? This is, is going to be really fun, man. Warren's told me a lot about you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, man. So <laughs> song starts, you know, and uh, and then, of course, <laughs> there's Greg going, wake up, mama. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I'm trying not to think too much, but it's like, this is Greg Allman. He's singing six inches away from my head. And uh, his Leslie is like right behind my head, and it's just so sweet sounding. And I'm just, you've seen me play. I, I move a lot. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I'm, I'm rocking out like a motherfucker, man, and just really grooving to it. And it's like, it's just one of the coolest things ever. And the other thing I was doing is I've been told for a million years that Greg's really secretive about his whole organ setups, like all his uh, draw bars on the organ Hmm. uh, and different things that he does. So out of the corner of my eye, I kept watching. And in in that one song, I learned so much about what he does. Uh. It was really cool because it it completely changed me as an organ player. But that's a side note to this thing. So, the song ends, and, uh, and yeah, I'm just, like, blissing out. And all of a sudden, I get this tap on the shoulder. And I turn, I turn around, and Greg goes, hey, hey, man, that, that's really good. Uh, except, except one thing, though. He goes, uh, you know, this here organ bench we're sitting on, it's, it's, it's very old, and it means a lot to me. And if anything were to happen to it, I would be extremely upset. <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, my God. So they start southbound, and I'm telling you, I was a corpse on that. <laughs> yeah, right. The only thing that moved were my were my fingers, man. Right. I didn't move a muscle, and and it's funny because for for years after that, I sat I sat in with them so many times, and every time I went up there, I always would tell Greg, "You don't have to worry about your bench, man. I got you covered." Right, right. And I just sit there like a corpse and just play, you know. Yeah, and uh, so. The, the, the other side of this story is, so uh, I think this was in about 2004. I'm on tour with Chris Robinson, and we opened eight shows with the Alma, for the Allman Brothers. And uh, Greg, uh, you know, we, we do our thing, and I'm about to walk up the stage. I get the tap on the shoulder. <laughs> he goes, listen, man, he goes, uh, uh, are you hanging out for the rest of the show? I was like, yeah. He goes, I need to speak with you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I walk off the stage, walk down the ladder, and I'm, I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? I, I'm going to get my ass handed to me now. Like, Greg Holmes. Yeah. No. So I'm pacing around back there. They're doing their show. Finally, the show ends, and Greg comes walking down the, the stairs, and he sees me, and he goes, hey, man. And he just keeps walking, and I'm like, oh, thank God. All of a sudden, he stops, and he turns around, and he goes, oh, yeah. And he comes up to me and he goes, you know, uh, I hate the word audition. I really do. He goes, but you've auditioned for me so many times. and I'm just kind of wondering if you'd like to play in the Greg Allman band. Whoa. And you know me, Mr. Loquacious is all of a sudden jaw on the floor. Nothing. I can't even get a word out. I'm just like, yeah, okay. (laughs) It was like the biggest honor of my life to have Greg ask me that. And this is thinking I was going to get, get, you know, excoriated. Right. Sure. So, wow. uh, 
And I'm great. And then, of course, it, it, it never comes to be because, and I, I even talked to him on the phone a few times, and he had an opportunity to play with these uh, these session guys from uh, like from Memphis and shit. Uh, mm. So he ended up doing that. But funny, man, you know, because the next time I saw him, uh, Warren said to me, uh, Greg really wants to speak to you, man. He's up in his dressing room. This was at a Beacon Theater. And I went up there, and he says, hey, man, come in. He apologized to me. And he's like, I'm so sorry that didn't happen. And, you know, and it, it never, you know, it never came to be, but it was quite the honor to be asked. And I, and I always, I have, I have such affection for that guy. And it really pained me when he passed away, you know, and just to watch him deteriorate over the last bunch of years. Yeah. Uh, but that, that story just blows my mind that it, it, that it happened, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Was, uh, so yeah, so how did how did he change you? How did how did that sit in change you as an organ player watching him? Well, you know, I I always loved. There were certain devices that Greg had, and and I never understood how he got it to work so well. One of the things he did was um, so take Elizabeth Reed as an example. You know that, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so he's playing Elizabeth Reed, and he's got. Um, He's using the the, um, the 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 far right draw bars uh, for the top manual of the organ, and he's got percussion on. And he doesn't use the chorus the the, cor- the chorusing, and so it's straight. And the Leslie's on slow, so he's doing way down, way down. And you know he's using the percussion like judiciously, like he's not always using it. Like so, he'll mm. he'll keep fingers down in order to get it just to be legato without that without the percussion. And mm-hmm. so he's doing his thing, but when it gets to the um, gets to the booting ding ding down, he goes to hit the 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 E uh, sharp nine chord, and with his left hand, he takes his pinky. Well, first he flips the Leslie on fast, takes his pinky and his thumb, hits chorusing and the second set of draw bars, which are set up so that they have a little bit of sparkle from the high pipes. And I never understood how he was able to do that in, in such a smooth motion. And I, and I saw him do it, and I was like, oh, my God, what a cool device. And I don't know... He might have learned it from uh, that cat uh, uh, that he, he learned a lot of stuff from. The guy that plays in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, Mike Finnegan is his name. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. Mike's an amazing organist. Oh, my God. He's crazy. But I, but I think Greg picked up a lot of tips from, from Mike uh, when, he, when he lived in L.A. for, uh, for a while. And uh, so that was one thing. And then also his draw bar settings were, were interesting because... Uh, he he never he never pulled them all the way out like 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 Melvin Seals or some of those organ players. He he always kept them kind of halfway, so the volume was always uh, contained. Mm. He never he never really was a you know a, a gregarious player. You know, very simple two note and three note chords. He really never went for the big stretch chords. And man, it's it's why it worked so well with the Allman brothers. And, uh, and I, it was a great thing to learn, you know, almost a humbling thing to learn in a way, you know? Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that always amazes me about like the organ. It's just like such a, 
mammoth instrument because it's like not just like you know you're playing a piano or you're playing a keyboard and you have to sound good like you do but there's also this you know for 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 listeners that might not exactly know what we're talking about there's like multiple i don't know how many would you say like a few couple few dozen draw bars like what how i don't know how many are on in the organ there's there's nine draw bars on and there's two sets of them for each of the manuals the upper and the lower okay so you can have um the other thing about the organ, which is really cool, and most people don't even ever mess with this, is that, you know, then there's the presets. Uh, and, you know, they, they, come, they come factory preset to have different sounds, uh, more churchy kind of sounds. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is if you're in the back of the organ, each one of those uh, presets is wired to be screws. So you could, you could in theory, Make your own presets if you were willing to get in there and mess around. And there are a couple of organ players that do that. Right. So the, the draw bars just automatically go to that preset? Exactly. It, yeah. So each of the nine draw bars is set at a certain, because uh, they go from one to nine. So each one is set uh, at where it's supposed to be. And, and there, you see the, uh, on the presets, each, each of the things has a screw hole. So there's nine screw holes. So you can move the thing up or down to get the right volume for that particular drawer bar. And you come up with your own sounds. I always thought it would be a really cool thing to do, but it's, it's time, you know, time consumptive. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know. I just, I just never got into it. There's just too many other things to do, you know. But uh, the-, the organ, it, it's, such a, it's such a personalized thing. Everybody's got their little, their little thing, their little thing with the sound. And I, I find it funny sometimes when I'm playing a Terrapin uh, and maybe there was another organ player there the night before or two nights before, and I, it's interesting to see where they left their drawer bar settings. Hmm. And, uh, and pe- everybody's got their own thing, you know. I know I got my own thing. And, uh, you know, the one I love to watch the most is Melvin. Melvin, Melvin's one of the, uh, of all the organ players I've ever seen, I've never seen anybody be able to play that instrument like he does, get this kind of sound he gets. Um, and it's funny too, because I'll, I've watched his draw bar settings and I'll get those draw bar settings. And no matter how hard I try, (laughs) I can't sound like him. Right. I can't do it. (laughs) It pisses me off. Like, damn, he's also got massive hands. Sure. So he he's got this incredible reach, so he he can do a lot with with his with those hands. But it's just uh, it, it's his playing, it, it, his sound is so sparkly. It's just ah man. This is some of those Garcia band shows, and it's like whoa, dude. Garcia like struck gold when he found him. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever talked to uh, yeah. Melvin about about that? Yeah, no, I have. Uh, in Devin's fact. <laughs> One day, I said, hey, Melvin, man, I would love to, like, meet up with you sometime and really, like, delve into this. And he goes, come to my studio. So a couple of years ago, DSO had a day off, and I, I called him up a few days before, and he gave me his address to his studio, and I, I showed up there. So I, I come walking in, and he's got this little studio in some industrial area of, of San Francisco. Yep, I've, I've been and, there. Uh, and he's got, he, you been there? Yeah. Yeah, no, so you yeah. know, he's got yeah. he's got that massive organ that he has that has his name on it and does lights and smoke and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all set up for him. And he's got a drum kit and bass amp and 
Like, I'm walking in, and these two cats in there playing, a drummer and a bass player. And Melvin is sitting behind a mixing console. He goes, he goes, Rob, man, he goes, just go play. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he makes me play for like two hours with you guys. And he's grooving. He's, he's doing shit with his mixing board. I think he just got a new console and he wanted to mess with it. Yeah. So my whole, my whole reason for going there was to talk to him with the organ, and I ended up just playing for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a, you know, a tentative date with him for, for some undisclosed you know, day in the future that I'll, right. I'll be able to go back there and talk to him. But it, it would be really great to, you know, just to, just to get his take on uh, uh, why he, he, he uses some of the sounds he uses and, and how to, you know, the whole gospel thing. When I listen to gospel organ players, it's, it's, there's a mystery to it. it, it I, can, I, can play, I can play the notes. I can't get that feel. I don't know, maybe because I, I, I wasn't raised in the church, you know, or whatever it is. But man, it's just a, it's such a beautiful sound and I, I love it. And I mess with it all the time. And it could be just my insecurity about it that makes me feel like I don't get it. I, maybe I do get it, you know, and I don't realize it, but I don't know. I always feel like I could do it better. And so talking to a guy like that would really help me. So hopefully next time I get together with him, I could actually sit down with him one-on-one. Was the organ, when, when did you kind of get introduced to the organ? Oh, or early, uh, at 11. Uh, oh, wow. So I, I, I started on guitar when I was six. Uh, I heard the Beatles for the first time and I was, I was hooked. I, and I knew in my little six year old brain, uh, that that's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't know how to verbalize that, but I knew it. Mm. It's, wow. That was for me. Uh, it just felt exactly right. So I played guitar for five years. And then, uh, when I was about 11, my dad, for, for whatever reason, he wanted a theater organ in the house. He just kept talking about it and talking about it. And my mother wanted a piano in the house. Not only for, for me, but she wanted a piano in the house because she wanted to learn how to play. She just always loved the piano. And they fought about it. Oh, man, they had some major put-downs a couple times about it. You know, one of our neighbors was selling this baby Grand Baldwin white piano, and she, they would have basically given it away. And my father was like, no, we're getting an organ. So of course they, they put it to me and I'm 11. What do I know? You know, mm, yeah, right. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, Jeez. I want an organ. You know, I was, I was fascinated with all the, all the stops and buttons and all the crap, you know? And that's, so that's, they, they finally, my dad won and we got the Lowry theater organ. And, uh, I, that's how I learned how to play. And I took lessons and, you know, and I, by the time I was like 14, I was playing, you know, playing in rock and blues bands all over the place. And, uh, and then I, I, I was a, I went to school as a classical organ major. And within, within a semester, I knew it was a mistake. I knew, I, 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 a, I, I was like, what am I going to do as a classical organ major? What, what right. am I going to end up doing? Yeah, I don't totally. want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to play in a church or I'm never going to be Virgil Fox. I mean, that's not going to happen. So I, uh, I switched to piano and, uh, and at the same time also got like turned on big time to the jazz pianists and I never looked back since then. So, Did you have a period where you uh, played, played jazz a lot? Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, all, through, all through my 20s and into my 30s, I, I was playing in uh, numerous jazz groups 
uh, you know, and I also did, I also did weddings. So I was playing with guys that were versed with the, you know, with the standards repertoire. And so we would, you know, we'd mess around, like do those preheats before the, you know, before the party really starts, you know, cocktail hours and we would, we would get down, you know, yeah. and nobody ever complained. So, right. but it was a great way to, you know, learn all those tunes. I studied with a couple of great, uh, 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 uh players. Uh, this one woman in particular named Liz Gorell, she was a disciple of Lenny Tristano's and, uh, I learned, I learned so much, so much cool stuff from her about voicings and, uh, just developing the line and, yeah, it's great stuff. I, I loved it. But, you know, at some point, uh, you know, you kind of come to the realization that you're going to start for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I did start for a long time, you know, it was really bleak and, uh, and it was weird. I kept, I kept getting sucked into these grateful dead bands, uh, on long Island. I, I, I was in this band called Timberwolf and, you know, we, we would, just, you know, we traveled all over the tri-state area, you know, like New York, Jersey, Connecticut, and uh, Massachusetts, and playing Grateful Dead tunes. And, you know, I, I, of course, always loved it because of the jam aspect of it. Uh, that's, and, and, and I love the songs, but the jam aspect is what really attracted me to the music. It was like a way to really stretch out and, you know, and you can, you can utilize the whole jazz thing within, within reason. And, uh, and then, you know, and then I went back into the, into jazz world for quite a while. And, and all of a sudden I got a phone call from Jeff Matson who had, wanted me to join his band, the Zen Tricksters. And, uh, and then I joined the Tricksters and really that was, that was pretty much the end of ever wanting a jazz career because, you know, we were touring about 225 dates a year, still starving. Yes. And wow. then, and then of course, Phil, Phil calls. And that and that changed my life forever. You know, I've never looked back since then. How did how did Phil n- notice you guys? S- Sorry, I lost you for a second. He used to be Phil's publicist. Oh, who? do you know who J.C. Juanis is? No. J- J.C. No, he was Phil's publicist for 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 a while. And uh, he used to work, he used to write for Relics Magazine uh, way back in, in, uh, in the day. And uh, this was probably a ni- the end of 98. Uh, the Zen Tricksters had just uh, put out its second CD. Or we had just finished recording it, and uh, we were about to press it. And I, I called JC up and I said, listen, man, uh, I want to send you a copy of our new CD, uh, you know, to, to review it and, you know, get, get some feedback. He goes, sure, man. And I said, now, I have another favor to ask of you. I said, I know you're really good friends with Phil. And I wonder if you pass a copy on to him. I would love to get some feedback to, for him from him to see what he thinks about what we're doing. Mm. And uh, he said, sure. So I sent him two copies. And uh, now, fast forward uh, about 10 months. It's, uh, it's early September in 99. And uh, we pull into San Francisco uh, to play, uh, at some, some club on Geary street. It was upstairs and I can, I cannot remember the name of the, the library, but, uh, we're up in the dressing room and JC comes in. Hey, how you doing, man? Great to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. And I took him aside. I said, you ever get those CDs? I sent you. He goes, yep. I said, you ever give one to Phil? He goes, yep. I said, you ever hear anything? He goes, no. 
And me and Jeff Madsen just looked at each other. We were like so dejected, like, ah, he probably hates it. Uh, it sucks, man. What a drag, you know? So, so we go and we, you know, we play our gig. And uh, as, as we were traveling in a van back then, so, you know, after the gig, we went to a hotel. Uh, we probably had a hotel uh, uh, outside the city in the East Bay somewhere. And uh, we're heading up to Oregon as early in the morning. And uh, this is back before any of us had a cell phone. So we had to go to pay phones and make calls. So, you know, I was constantly on the phone with our booking agent and, uh, and stuff like that. I had a girlfriend up in Portland, Oregon. So we stopped to gas up. Jeff Matson, I was living with him at the time. He calls our house to get our messages. And I call my girlfriend in Portland. And I get on the phone with her and she goes, uh, have you talked to, uh, your booking agent today? I was like, no, why? He goes, he's frantically been trying to get a hold of you. He's been calling me. I said, ah, uh, you know, God damn it. What the hell now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always something. Right. right. Some gig is fucked up. Yeah. It's a, I'm just like, and I turn around and I, I'm looking at Jeff and he's on the phone and he's got this look on his face. Like someone died, like a very serious look on his face. I'm going, what? He goes, you'll never guess who left a message on our machine. I was like, who? He goes, Jill Lesh. Oh. like, Jill Lesh? What are you talking about? He goes, she says it's Jill Lesh, and that Phil wants you and I to go and play with it. I'm like, that's bull. And I'm like, Julie, I got to call you back. Clank. And uh, so, you know, I said, Get, call the number. So he calls the number, and sure enough, Jill answers the phone. And, and what had happened the night before... Bill was, was uh, listening to CDs every night before he went to bed of different bands, and, uh, and he was trying to find new guys to play with. And it just so happened that our CD was on the top of the pile, and he heard it and flipped. And he called us. And that's, wow. how, that, that's how that went down. Wow. And, what, and I found out later that J.C. had given the CD to uh, Jill's assistant to give to Phil, and they moved their office, so in the process of moving, it kind of got lost in the sauce. Right. And and they once they got their shit together, they found it, and and he put he was a fan of the Zen Tricksters. This kid, his name is Doe, um, and Doe put it on the top of the pile, and it was the first one he heard. So you know that's <laughs> that's how it works sometimes, right? <laughs> it's it's crazy how many little things had to go right to make that connection happen. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah. And, and and I, Phil, I did, uh, yeah. we were gonna. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say, Phil, Phil, Phil clearly, you know, made, had the right instincts since, you know, that was how many years ago, and you you continue to work with him. I mean, he he knew it. He knew what. Yeah, he, what he yeah. Wanted. It's uh, it's it's quite endearing to me that uh, I I've lasted over all these years, you know, and uh, but that that. Originally, uh, Jeff Matson and I were supposed to play three shows at the Warfield, and then three shows at the Denver Fillmore, and and then I was going to go on from there to do his cross country tour. Uh, it was going to be his first tour, and we were going to co bill with Dylan, and that band was uh, was uh, John Molo, Phil, me, Warren Haynes, and as it turns out, Steve Kimmock quit. Uh, after the Denver Fillmore shows, and it ended up being Derek Trucks. Okay. So it was a really very interesting band, and Derek was like 20 years old, you know, and just like yeah. 
mind blowingly good, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but then Phil comes up to us at rehearsal one day and he goes, uh, and he goes, listen, guys, uh, I got, I got a little bit of bad news. Uh, Jeff, you're, you're going to play these three Warfield shows, but then, uh, you guys are going to go home and, uh, I'm going to go to the Denver Fillmore. I have an opportunity to play with the little feet guys. And I've always wanted to play with them. And, you know, it just came up. So, I hope you guys, you know, don't take it personally and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, but Rob, you're going to, you're going to go on to, you know, to do the rest of the tour after that. So poor Jeff, you know, he did the three shows and then uh, he was banished for yeah. a while <laughs> until, uh, until 2016 when, uh, 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 he got called, you know, he got called to come out to Terrapin to do, to do a show. So, uh, but, uh, yeah. And I went on to do that and I, I tell you, it's, uh, interesting uh, i get picked up at the airport when i go down there for my first rehearsal and in the in the van is uh warren and john molo and and warren of course i i i've never well i've never met either of these guys but i i was very familiar with warren's playing uh you know from the allman brothers and and uh molo I had a friend who I was recording with, uh, who's a great songwriter, and he made me sit down and listen to a track one day of uh, Bruce Hornsby in the range, and it was the song Jacob's Ladder. He goes, listen to the drummer on this track, man. He goes, it's like the greatest drumming I've ever heard in my life. And of course, it was Molo. Hmm. You know, so I always knew about John Molo, and here I am sitting in a band with them, and I'm, I'm just shitting a brick, you know, I can't believe this is going to happen. You know, and then I walk in the studio, and the next thing I know, it's Phil walks in, and he comes right up to me, because you must be Rob Barack. I love your playing, I love your singing. I'm so, I'm so excited to play with you. And I'm just like, hey, wow, <laughs> this is really wild. And uh, so we're, we're at this first rehearsal, you know, and things are going okay. You know, we're just going over the perfunctory tunes, and all of a sudden, Phil goes, um, I want to do uh, this song, Morning Dew. Uh, now the other thing that's interesting to note is Phil had no idea that I knew any Grateful Dead music. Oh, none, zero. He thought that I, you know, I played original music, and so he's each song he keeps going. We're going to do this song, Unbroken Chain, Rob, and I'm and I look at him, I go, I know that one. He goes, You know Unbroken Chain? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was going on like all day. So finally he goes, we're going to do Morning Dew. And of course he looks at me all of a sudden. I'm like, yeah, I know it. I know it. it's cool. He goes, we're, we're going to do it in a different key though. Cause I'm going to sing it. I'm like, okay, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know what was happening. Kim Ock was, was in the band then. So Kim Ock was messing around with the tubes in his amp. Uh, Molo was messing around with his kick drum pedal and Warren had to make a phone call. So Phil just looks at me, he goes, how about you and I just start, let's do, let's do something in B minor. So I was like, okay. He goes, so just, just start playing. So I just start playing and he's on me like white on rice. And we played alone probably for about three, four, five minutes. And in in my lifetime, I've never played with a musician who, who understood how to take things to, to these different places. You know, I, I always was trying to force guys that I played with to go, outside the play outside the box, you know, and for a lot of musicians, it's a hard thing to do, but Phil's like the master of it. Right. So it's like the best playing I've ever done in my life. And then one by one, each of the musicians starts coming in and 
this jam goes on for about 15 minutes. And then we finally go into morning dew. And at the end of the jam, the, all of us, were, were, it was pretty profound. Like it was very deep, deep spiritual music that got played. And we're, I'm kind of just looking at my shoes, you know. Here she goes, when that song ended, Phil was looking at you guys like beaming. And none of you guys would look up. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was a really profound moment. And I think uh, the next day when I, when I got to rehearsal, uh, do you know, did you know Kathy Sunderland? I did not. Jill's road manager and uh, one of Jill's best friends. She passed away in uh, early 2013, and uh, she eventually became one of my best friends. Mm. But Kathy comes in, and she goes, I got good news. I was like, what? She goes, you passed the audition. I was like, audition? Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, what audition? She goes, I had no idea. I thought I just got the gig, right? Right. They, so, I mean, that's. I'm they... so grateful. I'm so grateful nobody ever told me it was an audition. Yeah. Because, you know, it puts a gravitas on it, right? Yeah, like, totally. Who needs to have that in the back of their head? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell you, man, every show, every show, it, it, it was just magical what, what, was, what was happening on the stage. And, you know, and then, uh, of course, eventually, um, Jimmy, Jimmy Herring came on the scene and then the cue was born and really, you know, in all the bands I've ever played with, uh, I don't know if I'll ever play with a band that had that kind of connection. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we played some of the most fabulous music uh, that I've ever heard. And, uh, so interesting to play with a guy like Phil, because when you have the luxury of sitting back and listening and analyzing what he does, uh, is one thing, but when you're in the moment with him, you do not have that luxury. You have to mm -hmm. react and you have mm -hmm. to have the conversation. And it's, it's really profound. And you know, yeah. because you've done it. <laughs> yep. Intense. What, what were, what were some, I don't uh, know. We've veered, we probably veered off some kind of context here. What do you, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, uh, well, I'm curious, like what, when you first started, what, what was, what were like maybe the biggest, adjustments that you needed to make to to adapt to that situation or, or challenges you faced or or maybe that you were aware of the other guys in the band having to face that yeah that's a that's a really good question and and, and the answer to it is uh, one of the lessons i learned from from the early playing with phil was you know you can't go in with expectations mm. uh and of course all the years i was a deadhead and i mean i I went to a lot of shows and listened to countless hours of that stuff, especially the stuff from like, uh, uh you know, between 69 and, and, and 74. I, that's, that's my era. I just love that single, the single drummer stuff and the psychedelic stuff in 69. And, um, so now, you, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're playing with this guy and you're expecting something and it's not, it's completely not what it, that was. He's, right moved on yeah and he's into a whole nother bag now and that was a great lesson to learn it's like don't approach this with expectations just be part of the conversation and be yourself you're not no one's expecting you to be keith gotcha brent midland uh and you know just be rob baracco and uh, it was a great lesson to learn and, uh, and, and a hard lesson to learn you know you have to you know you just have to you have to hum be humble about it and and I, I loved it. It was what a great experience to to um, 
you know, to, to experience it at that level and not, and, uh, but that, that was, a, that was a, the big adjustment for me was not to expect anything. And also from the other musicians, there is, nobody's playing like Jerry Garcia. Yeah. Nobody's playing like Bob Weir there that none of that exists. It's a new thing. Just accept it as a new thing and, and go with it. And, and that's, and that's what that was all about. And what do you think, uh, what do you think, was so successful. Okay, what what were the elements that you think made that group so successful? Was it just like a a great you know combination of the right players with the right chemistry, or was there a way that you guys conceptualized what you were going to do, or, or like what you know what I I agree that the Q was was very special. I saw some incredible shows in the early two thousands. Um, yeah. You know, um, like what, what, you know, and you've been in lots of bands since then, wh- you know, what makes that sort of, uh, magic group? Well, the word you used chemistry. So I always, uh, it's akin to me to like, uh, let's say take a, uh, a baseball team, like the New York Yankees back in the, in the day when, uh, George Steinbrenner was their owner and he would spend a gazillion dollars on all these different players. He, and he couldn't buy a championship mm. because it's not about that. It's not about how great the players are. It's about the chemistry that they have together and working yeah. as a team yeah. to make them champions. And that's the cue. The cue was just this great chemistry. We knew it from the first rehearsal we had when, uh, uh, you know, originally uh, Phil's concept for the band was he wanted a core band, which was going to be me, him, Molo, and Jimmy. And we were going to rotate guitar players every tour. And, okay, you know, Phil's band, this is what Phil wants. Sure. Uh, so we'll work with that. The very first rehearsal with Warren, with, within the first half hour, all of us knew. But nobody said anything, but we all knew it. We all knew that we had struck gold, that this, I don't know how it could be any better. Right. But, you know, so now we go, we go, we do our first tour. This was in uh, October of 2000 and we're playing in Burlington, Vermont. And, uh, this, this show ends and I, I walk into the dressing room and Jimmy comes in and Jimmy comes up to me, and goes, man, we, we can't let Warren go. <laughs> we can't. I'm like, I agree with you. And then Molo walked in and both of us told Molo and we said, yeah, yeah it's true. So we went to Phil. And we said, you know, man, please just keep Warren. And, right. you know, and it's like, oh, God, what is he going to say, right? He goes, guys, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, in his Phil voice, you know. Yeah. So I think, I, think you're, I think that's correct. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that's how, that's really how the key was born. You know, it, it, uh, we just knew, you know, and you don't mess with chemistry. And, yeah. and I think what made that band great is Phil said to us right from the beginning, you are the first among equals. Just play. Be yourself. He didn't want any solos. He wanted no structure like that. Um, and an interesting uh, thing that happened earlier uh, on, my, on my first Phil uh, tour when it was Warren and Derek, it was the second show of the tour. Uh, and you'll see why this is, why I'm telling you this. Uh, so, we're playing this place uh, somewhere in the mid, 
Midwest, I think. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it was, but the security in this place was awful. And Phil, in deference to Bob uh, Dylan, decided that we would open every show and let Bob have the headliner slot, even though it was co-built. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're about to go on, and the place is not even a quarter filled because the security is so awful and the line, it's a sold-out show, and the line is like forever. Yeah. So finally Phil goes, well, we're going to have to go on, you know. And so we walk out, and, and you know, I, I think we all – we're like, wow, there's like almost no one here compared to how big this place is. So I was just, you know, it's they're tuning up, and I just started noodling a little bit, you know. And the next thing I knew, oh, and Phil also had a penchant. I don't know if he's ever done this to you. He has this penchant for going out on stage before the lights are down. Yes, so house lights are on, and we're standing on the stage, you know. It's kind of weird, you know. Mm-hmm. But so we're. We're, I'm noodling, and the next thing I know, Warren's noodling, and Derek's noodling, and Phil's noodling, and Molo starts playing, and then the house lights go off, and we're in this jam that came from nowhere and lasted over 20 minutes. Hmm. And it was like, it was just profound. And then we finally launched into the rest of the, the show. At the end of the show, Phil is just losing. He goes, guys, he goes, I was ready to just say, fuck the set list. Let's just uh, jam the whole show. He goes, uh, we're going to do, we're going to start every show. We're going to start every show like that. And, and that's how that got born. And we did. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Phil still does that. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was an interesting thing how, how that came to be. You know, like we, 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 we would just go on stage. And the only thing we would talk about was key groove. Mm. And, you know, all right, B minor, uh, let's do a bossa. Let's do a waltz. Let's do a straight-ahead Miles Davis thing. Let's do on-the-corner Miles Davis. And that's the only thing that we discussed. And then from there, it was just like, we just took it. And, yeah. and there were, I, I, sometimes I pick up some of those Q CDs, and I don't listen to too much stuff, but the stuff I've listened to, I'm really blown away by that first 15 minutes of the show. And every day was different. Every day was different. It was so friggin' cool. You know, so he wanted no structure. He didn't want solos. So... A lot of the stuff that went on was just all of us just playing and trying to be part of the conversation and, and do the DNA thing, I call it, twisting in the air thing, you know? The twisting in the air? The DNA. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I, I lost you there for a second. Say, you know, I, say one more time oh, about the, the DNA. Well, we would do this. We would do this thing, I call it like twisting in the air like strands of DNA as opposed to what I call roller coaster rock, where you yeah. have a soloist and the people that are supporting him and it goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down instead right. of doing that twisting thing where everybody's part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, I think some of the tunes naturally went to, they, there had to be solos, you know, set solos for certain things. Sure. But a lot of the time, he just didn't want that. Yeah. He didn't want that. The other thing he never wanted, he never wanted us to be quiet, to stop playing. If we got to this place where it, it, it looked like it was going to do that, he, he, he would bellow out like, don't stop, puddle, puddle. <laughs> First time I ever heard the word puddle, I was like, what is he talking about, puddling? <laughs> what, what was he talking about? Uh, you know, man, you work with him, man. Yeah. He's a funny dude. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but puddle specifically was that referring to like kind of this puddle was basically break. puddling yeah. was like just 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 play just play play whatever it doesn't yeah. matter what it is no yeah. no rhythm uh you know and we'll we'll puddle and find our way into the next tune right if if it got to those kind of places you know yeah I, I've seen him do that where he'll uh, just like twirl his finger around I think that kind of you know, right. it's the same Puddle. kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. uh, so what happened? How, how, what, I mean, I know you guys still play, you know, every, every now and then, but, uh, did, did it just come to a time where people were ready to, to do something well, else? Bill says, Bill says that the band plateaued. Now, I don't exactly know what that means, to be honest with you. Um, it, in 2002, I think they they got the idea to do that uh, dead reunion. And now now I'm gonna this is speaking completely from my opinion, and and uh, you know I whatever people's decisions are they they have their reasons for doing stuff. But you know I here I am I'm in this like super group, and uh, they decide to do the the Alpine Valley Grateful Dead reunion, uh, two shows, so. It was a kind of a cool concept. It was like all the principals had their bands. You know, mm-hmm. Bob had Rat Dog. Billy had uh, his band. Uh, I forget the name of his band at that time. Something Chromes. And, uh, uh, and Mickey, of course, had his thing. So each day, uh, we, we were the ones who opened the festival. Uh, uh, the Q went on and did our set early. And then I think uh, Mickey's band did his thing. And then the Dead would play. And of course, it's called the other ones. Then, right. so the other ones did would do their two sets, and and then the next day, uh, the other two bands played, and then we did our set. And I thought that was a great idea, and the, the heads loved it, you know. But then somehow they got it in their heads. Well, maybe we should take the other ones on tour. And that was kind of the death of the queue right there, because. You know, the Q was playing at a certain level as far as financially and where the kind of places we were playing. Once you put those four principles together, you, you can play massive places and make insane amounts of money, right? Yeah. You know, and you can't, how can you argue with that? Right. Um, so, so, you know, so the, the fall of 2002, it turns out that we're going to, you know, we're doing, uh, we're doing the other ones. And then, uh, and then, of course, then there's New Year's and there's, you know, so we do New Year's and then we do a spring tour and then we do a summer tour. And then I get this phone call uh, from Kathy and she goes, OK, uh, fall of 2003, Phil wants to do the queue. OK, great. So the queue, we do a, a tour and it's really a, it, it actually was a great tour. It was different, though. A band, you know, it, it's like as players, we're still progressing. So mm. things are changing. Know. Sure, but uh, you know they brought the dead back, and I did the I did 2002 and 2003, and you know again again here we're we're talking about chemistry, and it just didn't seem like those guys. I tell you, I miss Jerry the most being up on stage with those guys. Yeah, because you know what I saw Jerry's magic. Jerry was the X factor. Jerry was the thing that binded them together. And without him, I, I just don't think there was a leader for the ship. They all wanted to be the leader of the ship. 
the captain, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, at least in Phil's band, he was the captain, and he allowed us to just be ourselves. But with these guys, they everybody wanted to do what they wanted to do, and it just never, to me, never really gelled. It never really gelled. And, and also coming from the queue, it, it was, to me, it was a little bit of a step down because now we had to play in the box. Right, yeah. And it was very hard to go outside the box with these guys. Phil mm-hmm. said it to me the best. He said, uh, we were talking about the difference between playing with one drummer and two drummers. And he says, playing with two drummers is like playing, is like a freight train, like driving a freight train. Yeah. He said, playing with one drummer is like driving a Ferrari. Yeah. I totally. love that. I think totally. that's right, you know. It's like, yeah, two drummers, big power, but it's going straight down the line. You ain't veering off. Yeah. And, yep. you know, <laughs> so anyway, so that's that. Yeah. And then, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I was very, I, I didn't, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't talk to Phil for quite a few years, uh, from 2007 to, uh, the end of 2011. I never heard from him again. And in 2011, he called me and, and uh, he, I was so surprised to hear from him. And he said, listen, he goes, uh, have you heard that I'm opening up a place? And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I did. You know, he goes, well, I, I just want you to know that I want the queue to play there at least four times a year. And, you know, you're part of this, of all of this that's happened. And, you know, so it was kind of cool that we did get to play a couple of times, but it's certainly not enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just talked to Warren about it. And Warren was going to talk to Phil. He goes, we, we need to do, I saw him in Jamaica. He goes, we need to do a 10-show tour. <laughs> I was like, right. make it happen, Warren. <laughs> yeah, totally. Who knows, you know. But yeah, the, even even after not playing together for years, that band gets together and it's, boom, it's right in. It's right in. How, uh, so... Okay, let's uh, contrast that a little bit with, um, I mean, your main gig these days is playing with Darkstar. I'm guessing that's got to be, you know, I know it's not the cue, but I'm sure that you you have to enjoy it to a certain certain extent if that's what you're spending most of your time doing. Uh, What is is the improvisational approach of of that band? Well, you know... So, okay. So now the very first time I ever sat in with those guys, well, uh, after, after Scott died, uh, their, their original keyboard player, they called me up, uh, to, to do a tour because they were in a panic. They, they were really distraught. They had a huge month long tour coming up. They just, none of them had the stomach to audition people. Yeah. And they knew that if they could get me to agree to do it, they, they wouldn't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I agreed to do it. I, and I had exactly a month off between doing, uh, a fill, this fill stuff. And, uh, I had a new band called the drag. The very first show in the middle of the show, it hit me like right in the head. Like, wow, this is, it's kind of cool what these guys are doing. It's like, so we were doing a 77 show and, you know, you have the constraints of the era and on the, on the, uh, the sounds and the, uh, the arrangements, but everything they were doing was, was improv was mm. all improv. And, you know, some, you know, they, even though they made an attempt to sound like the guy they were trying to sound like, 
their personalities were leaking all over it anyway. Sure. So it was kind of cool, you know, and it was kind of organic in a strange way, uh, you know. So I, I, I dig this. I think this is really neat, you know. And I said a, little, a couple of tweaks here and there with this band. It could be really good, um, you know. And I had I had my own ideas in the back of my head of what would make Dark Star a really great band. And uh, and actually, they all came to pass after all the years that I've been involved with it. But I got the concept, and it's funny, I had to make major adjustments to my own playing because, again, I'm coming from playing with Phil and doing that whole, you know, be yourself thing. And now all of a sudden, you know, I've got to really pare down my playing. And in a funny way, it, it, it was a great thing for me, a very humbling thing for me. And it also made me a much better singer because I had to really sing outside the box from to do all that Brent Midland stuff. And right, um, right. I, I never sang like that before. I mean, that's not in my wheelhouse, you know, and, uh, and then doing the pig pen thing and all that stuff. So it really made me a better singer. Um, and, and of course it was, it was a living, it was a, a decent living. And, you know, they offered me, uh, an equal partnership with the band if I would join. And I, it took two years for me to decide that I wanted to do it. I had no intention in the beginning of doing it. I, you know, I had other things I was doing, and but then as those things dried up, you know, at some point, Phil uh, told me that he was getting off the road for a while for health issues, and that's what, and that's right at that same time is when they asked me to make a, uh, a a commitment. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm a working musician. I'm not rich. Yeah. <laughs> I got to right. work. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'd be a fool not to do this gig, and I'm glad I did it, and I do enjoy it. I I love the people. It's a it's a family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're finally at a point now where we're cutting down on the amount we tour. So I'm getting a lot more time off. Um, and next year we're talking about even, even cutting it uh, drastically because it's, you know, we're, 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 we're we're finally playing at a level, uh, the places we're playing, the amount of people we're drawing that we can do that. And, uh, but I really enjoy the concept. You know, when Jeff Matson finally joined the band after John Kedlisek went off to further Jeff, Jeff is an uncanny improviser. Like he really gets it and he's so psychedelic and uh, he's got so many cool influences uh, and they all come into play. Uh, like, like in any given jam, like I, he's playing pedal steel shit. Like hmm. Jerry never did that right. unless he was playing pedal steel. And it's so, it is a different texture, but yet it's, he makes it fit in the, you know, conceptually. And uh, sometimes I hear Richard Thompson come out and is playing, and it's like, wow. And he makes it work. And we, we have gone to some deep, deep places playing together. And I know him as a player. You know, I've known Jeff for over 30 years, and I've played with him so many. So, and it's great. And our, our, our newest addition, which is uh, uh, Skip, our bass player, added the finishing touch because he really gets the fill thing, you know. But he's got his own take on it, and it works. And people dig it, so <laughs> uh, I, I don't see a time when I won't do this. But I mean, I guess at some time I won't. <laughs> right. But uh, I'm having, a, I'm still having fun with it, and that to me, that's the most important thing. If I'm not having fun doing something, what's the point? You know, absolutely. To, to be yeah. away from home and your loved ones for so long, you gotta love it. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, get out. So, and I get to do other stuff on my free time anyway. Uh, I have, you know, I have that new band, the California kind, 
yeah, uh, with Barry Sless and John Molo, and I'm really, really enjoying that band. It's uh, it, it's allowing me uh, to take it out of the box again, and uh, uh, and then I have a I have uh, I do a project with Jeff Manson where we do his original music, and my son is the drummer, which is thrilling. Nice. He's a really, really good drummer, and I love playing with him. Uh, so you know, we have that special bond. You know, we've totally. always—I knew since he was six months old, he was gonna—he was gonna be a good musician. You know, and and I knew he'd be a drummer too. <laughs> mm. uh, was it hard? I always—I always, I always kind of like to ask this question. Just was it was it hard for you touring as much as you did and and being a father? Well, it's interesting when I when my kids were first born, I wasn't a touring musician. Okay. I played. Uh, I, I was just a local player. Uh, I didn't have a, a, a touring gig, uh, and I was doing. Uh, I was doing clubs, uh, you know, in the New York area, and I was also doing weddings. I was doing like a hundred weddings a year for five years, you know, shit yeah. like that. And uh, playing in my jazz groups and stuff was all local. I never toured. And uh, it wasn't until uh, I I got uh, I was playing with this one jazz group and we got approached by the music director for the Cosby Show um, to to maybe do some sessions hmm. and I ended up doing it for eight years uh, and it was really cool playing with all these great studio like the best studio musicians in the world who were on those yeah. gigs yeah and uh, and I got my first road gig out of that I was the key uh, the the second keyboard player for Freddie Jackson, this R&B singer, uh, who was very, very big with black audiences. I was the only white guy in the band. It was really cool, man. And it was my first, I, I toured the whole country and we went down to the islands and played. And, um, and man, when I first got that, when I first went on a tour bus for the first time, oh man, I was hooked. Like, <laughs> this is really cool. But of course, you know, now my kids are still little and I see that that could, that could, that could really wreak havoc. But that gig, it, it, it was only like seasonal. Like we would play in the summer and then maybe we did a couple of gigs in the fall and then I, we didn't play again until next summer. So I was back to doing club dates and stuff and my kids are starting to get older. And it wasn't until I joined the Zen Tricksters um, and, and not, not for a bunch of years after I joined that band that we actually started to tour around the country. Mm-hmm. By that time, my kids were older. And, uh, and, and I also was, when my kids were little, my, my, uh, my ex-wife, their mom, uh, was a nurse and she worked 12 hour shifts and I'm the one that they woke up to every day. I made their breakfast. I got them dressed. I took them to school. I packed their lunches. I did all that stuff. I picked them up from school, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah. I had a great bond with them. And, you know, my daughter even said to me once when she's little, she goes, you're not like other dads. I was like, how so? She goes, you're home. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's right. I said, yeah. because I go to work when you go to bed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know what? We've still talked to about it to this day, how they feel very fortunate that, uh, that they had me that way. Yeah. That's... And, uh, it's funny, years later, you know, this is, uh, my daughter was probably in college at the time, and my son was in high school, and I took him out to dinner one night, and I don't know why I felt like I had to do it, but I apologized to them for being away a lot. And my daughter goes, what are you talking about, Dad? Uh, she goes, do you know how proud we are of you, that you did the things you did? And 
I mean, who, who can boast that about their dad? And besides right. that, do we want happy dad or sad dad? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, thanks. Thanks. That means the world to me. You know, I mean, I had a tear in my eye. I was like, Damn. How cool is that? Yeah. That is, that is, you know, that and is now my great. kids are all, you know, my kids are all grown up and out in the world doing their thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I have this bond with them that, uh, you know, I, I know that if it was any other way, it, we wouldn't have had this. So, but, Excellent. but I can see, I watched the guys in dark star, uh, our two drummers are the youngest in the band and they've got little kids at home mm. and it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's painful. For them, you know, so that's one of the reasons why we're 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 happy to be in a position where we can cut the amount of shows we're doing so they can spend more time with their families. You know, and I think it's really important, you know, to be present. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have kids. I have a uh, yeah, like a through almost three and a half year old son. Oh, cool! cool. Yep, yep. Oh, what a great age, man! Oh my yeah, god, that's he's, so much he's fun. Awesome. He's really great. You you Did met him actually drum? when he was a little when he was a little just born. I when we did that yeah, first I, I, you, gig. I, yeah. Uh he yeah, he does. Like, he I does play the drums. Him, yeah. He yeah, he's he he likes playing the drums and he likes singing and yeah, he's really he's really musical. Um wh- wh- while we're on the topic of I fatherhood, know. there's um <laughs> there <laughs> there's one story that um you recounted I I was there and then we were you know just played at Terrapin and um you were you were recounting a story to Phil uh about your father and the song El Paso that I thought was a great story and I was oh, wondering you, if you'd wanted to tell that. Yeah, so yeah, so you know, growing up my, my dad fancied himself a singer. And I think one of the reasons he wanted a theater organ in the house is he he wanted it so that I could accompany him. Ah. So he could just sing to his heart's content. And he, his thing was singing Italian love songs. Oh God, everything. So, you know, I, I and, and that's what I kind of grew up listening to, you know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, all that kind of big band stuff. And, uh, and of course, you know, he would get up there and, if our lips should meet in Umarada, and I have to play all this crap, you know? And, uh, but he had this, little uh the secret uh, like a guilty pleasure he loved country western music mm. and he was into marty robbins so he would play he he would make me well he would he loved hank williams also so i i used to play hank williams tunes for him he would sing like uh, jambalaya and your cheating heart and uh, but and then he put on records and all of a sudden you i would hear el paso you know and for kid it's like it was unusual to hear country Western music to me was kind of like, eh, you know, I, I want to hear rock and roll, man. I don't want to hear this crap. Yeah. And, uh, so now I'm at my first dead show and tripping balls, just tripping hard and, and blissing out completely. But yet, you know, you're in the maelstrom and all of a sudden they start this tune and Bob gets up there. out of the West Texas. I'm like, no, <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and I really—it was. It, I went on a bum trip after that for a little while, and my oh, friends man. were like, "Calm down, calm down." I'm like, "No, you don't understand. My dad must have made him do this." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you, I lost it. And I so the next day, 
you know, I'm finally, I'm finally feeling normal at home. And, uh, my dad comes home for dinner and I, I said, uh, so he goes, how was your grateful dead concert? They, they were so not into the grateful dead. They really hated the, the music and the band and the whole concept of the hippie thing. And, yeah. And so I said to my father, I said, you know what song they played last night, dad? He goes, what? I said, El Paso. He goes, they did not. I was like, I swear to you, they did. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, how is that possible? And I <laughs> was thinking to myself, maybe I imagined it. Maybe in like the throes of the LSD, I imagined them playing El Paso. Maybe they played something completely different, you know? <laughs> it was a mind-bending thing, though. That's a, that is a real true story, man. Oh, that's Can't great. make that shit up. That's great. <laughs> Well, Rob, thanks so much. Uh, it was really, it was really great to uh, get to chat a little bit. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. And there you have it. There it was. That was fun. I thought it was. You probably did too if you made it this far. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. I will see you in the near time in the future. In the meantime, you can keep up with me and all my musical and podcast-related adventures at... EzraLip.com, MagicAndTheOther.com, on Facebook, on Instagram, all that good stuff. You can sign up for mailing lists there, all those places too, if you want emails from time to time. You guys are the best. I love you. I'll see you sometime down the road. Come say hi at High Sierra if you see me. All right. And be good to each other. It's a crazy world out there. Okay. Bye.